Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. This is your host, George Muniz Gund. Today, I have a very special guest on the podcast, Livia Sarah from the Live Label Free podcast. Uh, welcome, Livia. Thank you so much for having me, George. Very excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I have many questions for you today about your you in general, your podcast, and then also your um, your uh, your new book that just came out, um, uh, Rain- uh, Rainbow Girl. Yes. yes. And I, I had my head, uh, I got a little stuck a little bit. Um, I, I, so the first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey with uh, battling an eating disorder and how you came to realize that you're autistic. Yeah, getting straight into it. Well, I always have such a hard time, which is, it's usually the first question to come, but I feel like, oh my gosh, like, where do I even start? Because it's like my whole life, which of course I wrote an entire book about. So if I am going on or rambling on for too long, which us autistic people tend to be good at, you can just say, stop right there um, and and guide me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I like to just start at the beginning, you know, when I I was growing up, because I think every autistic person, you know, diagnosed or not, can resonate with this feeling of like, there's something about me that is different. There's something about me I don't fit in. Um, why, like, why am I weird, quote-unquote quote weird? You know, why are my interests so different? Um, why am I asking questions that no one else is asking? Um, and this is kind of something that I've been talking a lot about with, with my clients lately. In With that is, you know, how when you're an autistic person, I feel like, we see straight through the bullshit of society, in a sense. Like, society at large is just, it's all about conforming and and being a cog in a wheel. That's what, you know, it means to be living in society. But I think, as autistic people, we're like, what? Like, we can't conform. We can't be part of this. Like, everyone is, like, blind to their own blindness, basically. And obviously, I'm not referring to, like, actual blindness. Um, But it just... From such a young age, I just realized, like, I just saw through things. And I was like, wow, like, I think that's why we can't engage in small talk, because it's so meaningless and purposeless to us. And for me, everything always had to have a purpose. Like, there had to be some sort of meaning at the end of everything I did. Um, And so, yeah, so in a sense, growing up, I was just like, okay, I'm different. I had barely any friends because all of the other girls my age, um... Because, yeah, we're just talking about dolls and makeup and gossiping, and I was like, this is so, so much bullshit, like, why can't we talk about why we exist and, you know, the infinite universe, like, that's what I wanted to talk about, like, existential stuff, you know, and so I quickly learned, like, the only people that I can actually talk to are, like, adults, um, and I remember, you know, just always wow, she's so mature, she's so wise beyond her years, how old is she? And my mom and dad would be, like, the proud parents, but at the same time, like, this is awkward, like, why is our kid like this? Um, And I was also just very perfectionistic, and I think, you know, that's kind of what started out as, like, my masking journey, I guess, It's just trying to find meaning and purpose and validation in external circumstances so you know excelling at my sports um and only being satisfied if you know I got straight A's on um, was the best student I was the teacher's pet um even though school was very difficult for me I felt like well if I can like prove to other people how perfect I am well then maybe they'll think I'm a little less weird um so yeah that was kind of just my childhood growing up with so much anxiety and so much stress because everything had to be perfect. I could not make a misstep. And at the time, I think when you're a kid, you don't even realize what you're doing. You're just doing it. It's just like an adaptation to to your environment. But now being older and like looking back at my entire life, knowing I'm autistic, because I only knew I was autistic when I was when I was 20. Um, I'm like, wow, all of those behaviors were all adaptations to feel safe in a society that, you know, made me feel really unsafe. Um, so anyways, 
going off the perfectionism and the obsessiveness and like seeking external validation, um, an eating disorder was practically landed in my lap when I was around 11 years old. Um, cause that's when we started learning about health and nutrition in school. And because I was, you know, the perfect student, I was like, I'm going to become the epitome of a perfect, healthy eater. Um, and then my literal thinking style um, just took all of the quote-unquote health recommendations very literally. I truly believed, you know, if I eat sugar, I'm going to develop diabetes. Um, and we can talk about sugar in a sec, too. Um, and, you know, if I eat quote-unquote unhealthy, I'm going to, like, develop quote-unquote obesity and I'm gonna get like heart attack because that's what happens you know if you eat junk food blah de, blah de, blah everything that you know diet culture conditions us to believe and it's all of course preying on our fear and our, preying on our insecurities in a way um because there's nothing wrong with eating junk food once in a while yeah. I, mean, I eat something unhealthy every day but I've never been this healthy in my entire life right it's mm-hmm. Even though it's so cliche, you know, it is about the moderation because, yeah, if you're going to be eating freaking cinnamon buns all day, every day, probably not too healthy. But if you're obsessed with eating broccoli and steamed rice and, you know, grilled chicken and that's all you eat and you're afraid of eating anything else, that's not healthy either. No. Um, it's really about that middle ground. And I think especially for autistic people with the executive functioning difficulties that come with that. I am now someone who, you know, I eat a lot of processed food. Like, most of my dinners are freaking frozen meals because I do not want to be bothered to cook because I'm spending my whole day, you know, writing and just navigating all the stimulants that never stops, (laughs) honestly. Um, But like I said, I've never been this healthy in my entire life because I'm finally investing my energy in places that, that lights me up and fills my soul. Um, Because I think, you know, one of those common phrases of like, I just want to be happy. I don't think anyone wants to be happy. I think we want to feel fulfilled. We want to have meaning and we want to have purpose. Doesn't have, it's not about happiness. (laughs) Um, But anyways, that's a side tangent. Going back to the story, yeah, so I just nutrition and the health and and dieting it just became almost a special interest of mine um and that quickly spiraled into just a full-blown eating disorder within a year I was in the hospital because my heart rate was too low um I'm a very petite person I've always had a very high metabolism still do um which I think is in part due to being autistic because Um, my brain is just never shutting off and the brain actually consumes 20% of the body's total energy. So you can imagine if our brains are like going on double time, we, our brains need more energy. And I think that is also why autistic people tend to need more sleep. We're tired more often because the brain is just never freaking shutting up. (laughs) It's always running. Yeah. It's always running. Yeah. It just shocks me, you know, when when you talk to a neurotypical person, it's like, what are you thinking about? They're like, nothing. And I'm like, no, uh, like, no, no. be honest yeah. with me. They're like, no, like, I'm actually not thinking about anything. And I was like, how is that even possible? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I had an eating disorder because I was, of course, a minor. I was 12 years old. I was forced into treatment and said, like, if you don't eat your meal plan, like, we're going to put a feeding tube down your nose. Well, I did not want a feeding tube because I was like, that is going to completely take control away from me. So then it was like, okay, instead of the eating disorder, like, the purpose is going to be the meal plan. I'm going to be this perfect meal plan follower. Um, and, of course, that came with weight gain. But sensory-wise, I was like, I, I cannot handle this, and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about, you know, fear of weight gain and, um, and eating disorders in autistic people is that it's like, oh, fear of being fat or whatever. For me, it was never about fear of becoming fat. I never had body dysmorphia. I never saw myself as fat. Um, it was really a sensory thing, because um, I am just so incredibly sensitive, like, I, I don't even need to own a skill for me to know if I've gained a pound. Like, I will feel that. <laughs> like, just the way everything fits and feels and things touching that you don't want to touch. And it just, it, and fullness was also something so scary to me. Because um, I was like, 
I want to crawl out of my skin. I want to like unzip my body and just jump out and run away, which of course is, is tied to that autistic fight or flight mode in a sense. Um, and I think that is what an eating disorder does. In a way, it numbs you so much that you don't have to feel confronted with those existential questions and with that discomfort of being inhabited in the physical body, basically. Um, so yeah, I was just forced in and out of treatment for years, um, constantly like being kicked out and, oh, well, she's too complex, like she's non-compliant, she's treatment resistant, because the whole thing was bullshit to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know if you're allowed to swear you on here. Swear. But, it's okay. <laughs> but it's like, you know, they were talking about like, oh, there's like a deep, dark hole of trauma, like you're coping with food and you're coping with your emotions. And I'm like, you guys do not know what you're even talking about. And just the therapies that I did, like DBT and CBT, and we, we did like family-based therapy where the parents take over the food, which is the worst thing you can do to an autistic person because we need autonomy and we need control. Yeah. So if you're, yeah, so you're going to take that away from us, well, we're just going to latch onto the eating disorder even more. So because, you know, that was the evidence-based approach, which, I mean, evidence-based could better be called evidence-biased. Neurotypical evidence-bias, yeah. Right. And, like, it goes to men- it toward mentioning, like, lobotomies were freaking evidence-based too. But... That was basically turning brains into men's meats. And a lot of autistic people and schizophrenic people and neurodivergent people were lobotomized because their brains were wrong. Um, side tension. <laughs> but yeah, so after just probably over seven years of being kicked in and out of treatment, it was like, okay, like she's never going to get better because this is just hopeless. Um, and from there, kind of everything went really downhill. My eating disorder got probably the worst it ever had. Um, I really was on the edge of death at some point. Um, until in 2017, I was like, I I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I know that this is serving a purpose and I'm terrified of living and existing in this meaningless world, which at the time, that's what it felt like. And I was like, well, I have two options, you know, either I let this illness kill me or I I see what life could be like and I knew in my heart the only way that I could see what life could be like was if I allowed myself to fully experience it um so yeah that was hard um I'm not gonna go into the whole recovery because that's a whole nother rabbit hole in and of itself but in 2020 I was like recovered from my eating disorder I'd say and that you know as far as I believed one could recover um and I started coaching people because I I had an Instagram at the time I had my blog at the time I was writing a lot at the time that was my outlet and people just really resonated with my story and the too complex and the hopeless um and my very first client actually was autistic I didn't know anything about autism at the time (laughs) um I was like okay you're autistic like tell me more about yourself and as we were talking and as she was explaining you know how being autistic contributed to her eating disorder I was like holy shit (laughs) like this is me this is my entire life um and then as any curious autistic person would do I immersed myself in everything I could learn about autism I read probably like 10 books in a week um just learning like about the traits and how it manifests like specifically in girls and women um and I was like yep this is me like I basically just like self-diagnosed myself on the spot right there and I was like I don't care what any professional says I am autistic um because it just it was the thing that clarified my entire life and almost gave me a reason to make peace with my existence in a way because I was like I'm not some well of course I'm an anomaly because everyone's an anomaly (laughs) um right but it was like wow I'm not that alien that doesn't belong here and that was like a huge permission slip for me to exist on this planet and to stop feeling guilty for existing um I think that's what an autism diagnosis self-diagnosed or professionally diagnosed can do to you is it gives you permission to exist, um, to stop feeling the guilt and the shame for being you. Um, so yeah, ever since that first client and learning about autism, I just started learning more and more about the overlap between autism and eating disorders, 
and just sh- more and more shocked about how no one was talking about this, how there was no awareness around it. Looking back at my own treatment, I was like, wow, like so much of this trauma that I had to endure wouldn't have been there if the autism had been understood and accommodated. Um, so yeah, ever since that, I've just been focusing on spreading um, stories of lived experience, also through my own podcast, sharing, you know, common topics and questions that come up around the link. Um, And yeah, so that's basically the Live Label Free podcast and label free because I believe that, you know, a life of freedom and a life without restrictions um, can only be led when you stop placing labels on yourself and you stop placing judgment on yourself and the way you do things. Um, and of course, the question always comes up, well, isn't autism a label? And I'm like, yeah, of course it is. And so is an eating disorder. And so is freaking a computer. And so is the light bulb. They're all labels because that's how we talk to each other. That's how we communicate. Labels are not inherently a bad thing. But I think when we use labels from place of fear of like non-compliant treatment resistant problematic rigid you know these labels are not helpful um it's all about you know what's your intention behind the label and at the same time i feel like we can only be our true selves when we say you know i i can be myself and i can exist fully without any label even autistic like of course i'm autistic but like without the autistic label like I'm still me Mm -hmm. um yeah it's very nuanced which has was like the oh my therapist said that yeah I know what you're saying yeah and I think that's a very common autistic trait is just nuancing everything Mm -hmm. but because that thinking style can almost make us paranoid I think that's in a way why we turn to the black and white because we're like if we do that we don't have to deal with our nuanced thoughts but I've come to learn that my nuanced way of thinking is my greatest superpower I think that's what allows me to see things that other people cannot see and I think that's what allows autistic people to create things that other people could never create because we're able to read between the lines um so yeah speaking of reading between the lines um and reading in books Rainbow Girl is my memoir, um, basically a very, very deep dive into the brief story I just shared, um, just really outlining and illustrating my life growing up undiagnosed autistic. Um, I explain, you know, how the nutrition class and all the factors that contributed to my eating disorder, how that manifested. Um, I also just share, you know, how harmful treatment was and, and what people, especially parents can look out for um when if they have you know a child who is who is in eating disorder treatment um so they can better support their child because i think there's a lot of shame and blame put on parents um Mm -hmm. i know for my own parents you know they were told you know if you don't do this fbt if you don't put your kid in treatment you're making a really bad parental decision well parents you know they just want the best and it's like well if they're the professionals, like, we must listen to them, but then it's, of course, ironic, because when you're kicked out of treatment, then suddenly the professionals are off the hook, it's like, mm-hmm. it, it just has to convenience them, basically, yeah. and it's like, we're throwing your kid back to you, good luck, <laughs> now the treatment is suddenly not the best thing anymore, um, so yeah, that, and then, of course, like, towards the end of the book, it, it's all about, you know, what, what I did to truly let go of my eating disorder and to leave that behind me, because, Another common misconception about eating disorders is that it's something you just like kind of going to have like in your rear view mirror for the rest of your life. But no, like the eating disorder is fully behind me. Um, and I really like the metaphor because I'm writing a new book now. Um, I really, and I came up with this metaphor of like when you're baking cookies, like you obviously start with like raw cookie dough um, and then you bake the cookies in the oven and through that heat process, like you can never unbake the cookies again. Like, you can, no matter what you do, you can put them in the freezer, you can never turn them back into raw dough. That is how I see recovery from an eating disorder. I can never go back there because I've baked my cookies. (laughs) Um, And I've, I've 
gone on to even more complex recipes, um, of course, metaphorically speaking. Um, but yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, and, and Rainbow Girl, and it's also worth mentioning that I have a cookbook, Nourishing No Diversity, um, if anyone's interested in that. I will so, definitely yeah. <laughs> add the information for that as well, yes. Perfect. Um, I also, well, there's, I just, there are a lot of things, like, I was, I resonated with really strongly that you were saying, um, I was also diagnosed relatively late in life, it was a little mm -hmm. bit earlier, I was 16, but it was still mm -hmm. later than I would have wished, because, um, even though society, I still have my questions about like if society would have been more accommodating to how how much more accommodating of the society would have right. been but I know that I would have been a lot more understanding and of yeah. myself and tolerant towards myself because what happened I I had a lot of the same kind of um complex that you were describing about thinking that I was just like a broken neurotypical that like why <sighs> can't I do these things like everyone else? Why don't I understand these norms that everyone else seems to understand? And why do these sensory things bother me more than other people? They're just like all these things started making so much more sense. And then, you know, it also led to like for me um, also, you know, like seeking validation a lot, like always yeah. being hyper aware and yeah. hyper analyzing what other people's perceptions of me were, even yeah. like during a conversation, I'll be doing that. And then, oh, it, yeah. yeah, it's hard because then I like, I can't fully be in the conversation a lot of times. Right. Because I'm like, how is this person perceiving me? And then right. I go home and I'm like in bed and I'm still thinking about it. And the other person might be completely like, they. it's not even in their head. It's been long gone. And yeah. for me, I'm like still thinking about it. And, and you mentioned also like how we're always processing information. And I saw there was like a, a statistic lately from a study that autistic people process an average of 44% more information than neurotypical brains. I, I love that you mentioned that also regarding the metabolism I was talking about because I have a podcast episode coming out next week. Um, obviously, I don't know what that is in reference to this episode coming out, but it's going to be called Autism, Anorexia, and Metabolism. And there actually have been studies um, that's how I knew about the 20% brain yeah. energy consumption thing. And it turns out that there have, there have been a few studies that have found that autistic brains actually have, like, have up to 67% more neurons, which are, like, the building blocks of the nervous system and the brain. So, I mean, obviously, if there's more connections, there's going to be more activity, more, you know, calories burned, um... Which I think is just fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, and it, it just helps. It's even just like that snippet of information. It, it helps me understand so much about why I'm constantly yeah. thinking. And like my yeah. brain is constantly activated. And the fact that it's not just that, but like, like you said, how the brain consumes a lot of energy. So it's yeah. like, of course, I'm always drained and exhausted and... And that's one of the things that's been the hardest, I think, like throughout life in terms of ne getting neurotypicals to understand that or non-autistic yeah. people or like even like my sister and my mom who are like yeah. not autistic or at least have very different experiences. Yeah. Um, and And it's like they don't seem to understand that like it's always running I can't just turn it off like my sister yeah. will like she'll often tell me to just not think about it or to just relax and it bugs me just relax just have a cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> like I you, if I wanted to I would right yeah so, no that's so funny because I was talking to a client yesterday we were talking about just how stupid meditation is. <laughs> um, because the amount of times I've been told, like, have you tried meditation? And I'm like, have I tried meditation? Like, is that a joke? And and someone actually commented on my Instagram. I had done a post, why is it so hard to be with my thoughts? Um, and someone literally commented. I was like, I think you're in the wrong place. 
because I commented like, you should try meditation, seeing the thoughts as clouds just floating by. And me and my client were just, just broke out laughing because we were like, they're not fucking clouds. If they yeah. were clouds, they would be clouds. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> and I think that's one of those things how, you, you know, we're like, we are so, in a sense, able to see through. Like, like, what are you even talking about? Whereas other people are so almost lost and like, oh, someone told me that my thoughts are like clouds. They must be like clouds. Without even thinking, like, but they're not fucking clouds. <laughs> like, yeah, I, like, exactly. It's so hard to explain, but it's yeah. just, that can, you can hear it for just from my tone of voice, but, like, that can get me so frustrated sometimes. Because I'm like, how do you not see what you're saying does not make yeah. any sense? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it relates also to, like, I think what you were saying about how neurotypical people, they just naturally, like, go with all these norms and constructs yeah. even when they make no sense right and it's right. like and i'm and and then and it, it one of the things that bugs me the most about it not only is it so conflu confusing and perplexing to me yeah. i'm like aren't aren't you guys like questioning this or do you guys yeah. notice this and but they get upset with me when i point it out they're like they treat me like the weird person Right. When I'm simply pointing out that something isn't accurate. Um, and the reason, yeah, the reason why, of course, they do that is because you're challenging the story they're telling you themselves. And the human mind will do anything it can to maintain the story. Because if you're going to say, well, the story you're telling yourself is, is an illusion, well, that is that is the biggest blow to the to the human ego. Mm -hmm. And if we don't know who we are or who we believe we are, well, then what's left of us? I mean, that's the scariest thing to be confronted with. And I know we're getting really philosophical here. No, but I think, you know, that is exactly why we have wars and we have conflicts is because just, just taking it really simple, like say you have two political leaders, one is saying... This is my view of the world. This is the only way it is. Um, and the only reason I can live with myself is to fully immerse myself in that story. Because if I even question the, the plausibility of that, well, no, 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 I can't deal with that. Because then, then the possibilities become endless and existential angst, oh, I can't face that. And someone else who's believing the opposite story is saying, no, well, this is how it is. And if we can't agree, well, then we must fight to the death because your story needs to be eradicated. And now I'm going to hire all my soldiers to help. Um, and then we, you know, have these world issues. And then when you think about it, when you look at it from an objective point of view, you're like, like, what is this even about? Like, this is like, this is like two toddlers, like fighting about their toys. Yeah. Like, that is what it is. And it's like, I, I truly believe that, you know, world we would have world peace if every single person would would be open to acknowledging like well maybe my story isn't everything exactly exactly <laughs> um yeah yeah because i i sense that a lot like people they do not want to be it, it like makes them feel weak like they can't just be wrong about something like and it's okay yeah. but it, it's really like I've noticed like I think especially for neurotypicals it's like more challenging because like for me I'm like mm -hmm. okay I was wrong about this like this I can yeah. I can very easily like at least at this point in my life I can acknowledge yeah. and it doesn't it's like to me it's like okay like there's nothing wrong with being yeah. wrong about something but to some people it's like such a core insult to them if yeah. you if you say something that challenges their their belief and they have to like defend it to the core yeah. so yeah i definitely relate to that um and yeah i uh also i just think it's really and and i think you know people don't really like uh, when you were saying about um how the autism diagnosis like discovering you were even before the diagnosis like when you just 
when you realize that you are autistic, you know, self-diagnosed yeah. or professional diagnosed, it, even when you just make that realization, oh, yeah. I am like, my brain works in a different way. It's so validating and like how, and it can have such an impact. And I think yeah. people don't understand because like I see, like I'm so tired of like the gaslighting that happens online yeah. when yeah it like autistic people are just like going online and sharing their experiences and talking about it uh, being autistic but there's it just bothers i don't understand but some people get so bothered and triggered by it um they and then they start calling us trendy or that we want attention or and it's right. like no it's an experience it's not yeah also the whole like no typical is being like, why is everyone getting diagnosed no divergent nowadays? It's just a trend. You're just trying to be I part of that. the club. Yeah. And I'm like, I think so many people are getting diagnosed neurodivergent nowadays because we have not been acknowledged for the past uh, past of history, you know? Mm -hmm. And I actually saw a really popular eating disorder recovery person post something on YouTube and I was just I could not believe it because they said, um, they were talking about, um, someone had commented on one of their videos, you know, how is eating disorder recovery different for neurodivergent people? Um, probably because this person is just very, I won't name names, but very popular in the eating disorder recovery space, written a book and everything. And, and she's, she's talking in her video and she's like, everyone's getting diagnosed with ADHD and autism left and right. They're just popping up. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're neurodivergent. I don't care if you're neurodivergent. Recovery from an eating disorder is going to be the exact same for you as it is for anyone else. And I was just watching this, and I was like... You must have been clearly, like, I was like, yeah. clearly you're not neurodivergent. And I'm like, I cannot even believe you have the audacity to say this as someone who clearly has no humility around mm -hmm. the possibility of there being an alternative approach um and i think kind of that's the danger of, of gaining you know celebrity status in any kind of space is you're like i know everything and you you mm -hmm. lose your humility and that's what happens with treatment professionals a lot of the time that's what happened to me you know is the medical gaslighting is like i've been working as a professional eating disorder psychologist for the past 50 years and i've treated hundreds and thousands of patients so if you are not getting better under my care well obviously it cannot be my care it must be you that's the problem it must be you that's too complex and i'm like too complex like when did we say eating disorders or autism or any kind of mental health condition? When did we say it's simple? I mean, that's what defines a condition is something that is freaking perplexing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ridiculous. But yeah, yeah I, as you can tell, I'm getting really wild up. But this that's why I'm so passionate about this because I think that is, again, like where I found my life's purpose is I'm so I found something that I'm so incredibly passionate about that I am able to creatively turn that into something that contributes beyond me and helps other people and I think that is ultimately the purpose of life it like I said it's not about being happy it's about being so incredibly passionate about your craft your art that you can contribute beyond yourself yeah, definitely. I think that's a really powerful statement because people get so caught up in not just like the term, it's like their idea of like the idea that it's just about being happy, but also like what what being happy means to them right. is usually they'll they'll go straight to like how much money they they're going to make or whatever like yeah. And it's like, obviously, it is important to like have enough money to be able to survive. But it's also like not, it shouldn't be. A, I, I don't think it's, that should be the goal of life is like, get a super high paying job and like high paying status. It's um, an external circumstance. I mean, mm -hmm. this is actually funny, because that same client who I was talking about the meditation and the clouds bullshit with we were just talking about how money itself is such a silly thing it's made up we made it up we made we made it so important and i mean studies have consistently shown and like billionaires and gazillionaires consistently like come out and on interviews and say like the more money i made 
the more I realized how meaningless money is. It's not gonna, it's not gonna buy you anything. Like, yeah, you can have a nicer, shinier car, and just like a psychologist can go to more years of med school to get a bigger, shinier diploma. But it's like, I don't, I don't care what's hanging on your wall or what's in your garage or like how big your house is. Like that, anything that is external is not that doesn't come from inside you is not going to give you meaning and fulfillment. And I think the delusion of the human mind is that we think that we can somehow compensate our internal fulfillment with external things. But the more you you delude yourself, the more unfulfilled you become because you're sucking your own possibility of internal fulfillment. You're, you're sucking it in. These external things are sucking it out of you. I, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> that's something yeah, I've definitely I, learned. I see what you what you mean, yeah. Because, like, I see this happen a lot with, like, not even just society, but, I mean, obviously, like, it's happened to me before. Um, but because of, like, people around me um, just trying, just, like, yeah, like... Uh, making it like oh no focusing on all these external things um yeah. and you know just like the definition in this modern capitalistic society of what success means or is supposed to yeah. look like or like oh what have i what have i produced and accomplished and like just the meaning of accomplishment as well like i feel like it's very the way it's defined yeah. is very narrow um it's a very subjective thing because i mean it, like i said i thought you know i would be accomplished or like let's take that money thing for example like people say oh i'll be accomplished when i'm making like seven figures a year but it's like if you were living all by yourself and have no one who you can spend time with because you're so obsessed with earning more money. It's like, how successful are you if you have no one to share your success with? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the I feel more successful than ever because of the connections I've made. And I've been able to make those connections through creating my art, you know, through contributing beyond myself. Like, even just, you know, you emailing me and saying, like, I loved listening to your podcast. I'm like, this is what it means to be human, is to connect with other humans. When I, you know, receive messages from people who've read my book, are like, wow, like, I finally understand myself. And especially from parents yeah. saying, oh, my God, like, I understand my kid now. I'm like, that, like, I don't care if I'm living in a cabin with, like, earning one dollar a day. <laughs> like, as long as we have human connection, we don't need anything else. It's true. Yeah. It's and and I it's so overlooked like that connection aspect because it's yeah. like like even when I talk to people about my podcast and like stuff like that, I feel like they still like they see it in a different angle. Like they're more they see it like just by numbers and everything and i'm like yeah. it's not about like the number it's nice to to the i i like when i talk about numbers it's because i'm i'm cuz i like how oh my god it's like impacting these many yes. people it's right. not about like follower it's like not about clout it's about right. like it's i'm impacting these many people and i've had like people reach out to me and say like my podcast has really helped them feel seen and understood right. and understand themselves and you know just like you were talking about how like discovering that you were autistic helped your eating disorder recovery journey and it helped you yeah. understand your eating disorder behaviors better and like it's just, and and it can do so many like that's an example of what it did for you and and it can do so many different things for so many of us and right I yeah. just yeah again what you said about the numbers and the clout it's mm -hmm. it's it's so nuanced because it's not about the number itself but it's about what's underneath the number because of course I'm the same like I may check my book selling statistics a little mm -hmm. more than I care to admit but you know when I see that so many copies have been sold I'm like oh my gosh I reached this many new people that can discover more about themselves yeah. you know it's not about the 15 on the screen or the 200 on the screen it's 
who's behind that 15? Who's behind that 200? And I think that's where, you know, again, with the nuance of, like, um, like I said, with, with the numbers, oh, my God, my brain is doing that thing where it thinks too fast and then forgets what it's going to say because my words can't keep up, <laughs> um, which is why autistic people tend to talk very fast. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, where was I going? Yeah, it's about it's about you know what's underneath the number and what's underneath the external circumstance, and I think that's why what what tends to happen is we get lost and we confuse that fact. We think, oh, well, it must be then only about the external circumstance. But the moment we lose our intention behind why we want that circumstance, well, then there's no point in the journey anymore. Um, so I think it, it's really important for anyone, you know, to remember when you are striving for some amount of downloads or like getting on like the New York Times bestselling list for authors, whatever, um, is, you know, why do I want this? Like what actual true fulfillment is, is in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it is, you know, coming down to, well, then I can reach more people, I can connect, well, then it's worth it. But if it's like, oh, I just want that so I can tell people how much money I made, I'm like, no one's gonna care <laughs> yeah at yeah. least not i'm not gonna care like because i see because like i noticed like in neurotypical culture how yeah it's just like there's all this emphasis on oh this person studied at such and such university yeah. and and is the and is on such panel or whatever this and that and it's like and that's like what's most people like it, it's Cause like I'm, I can tell like oh they're trying to hype this person up for a certain amount like a group of people that think a certain way, but yeah. I'm like yeah but I don't really care like where he went to school or how much money he makes I care about like yeah. what who is he as a person what what are his uh, yeah. values yeah. I care about yeah. like well what did you do that like is going against conformity yeah. <laughs> that's what I look for and it's super funny because I always tell people that you know. I love when people talk about their problems. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's this thing of like, oh my God, I have so many issues, but that's what makes you interesting. And I think that's what, that's why people are interested in stories. And that's why we love reading books is because like, I could read, read a book that literally is John woke up, he sat down, read the newspaper, drank his coffee. He spent the whole day looking at the flowers and then he went to bed. Well, technically that's a story, but no one is going to be interested because there's no problem. Like, if, you know, John woke up and he went outside and suddenly there was a tiger in his yard that was about to attack him, it's like, now I'm interested. What is John going to do to solve the problem? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's why, you know, when I meet people and I I very quickly ask, like, okay, what's your life story? And they've had no problems. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I cannot engage with you. Mm-hmm. Because clearly, like, you've not learned important lessons that you can only learn once you have to go through hardship. And I think that is what makes autistic people so incredibly rich as humans is, of course, it's terrible that we've endured really hard stuff and often have been traumatized in the process. But I think when you learn to to turn that mess right into a message, that is that is creating art. That is the purpose of human existence is you turning whatever hardship or fear or whatever you endured, you're turning it into something that contributes beyond yourself. I mean, the world's greatest artists and masterpieces and singers uh, and whatever, like, when you ask them about their life story, it's, you know, I had a really hard childhood. I was really poor. Music was my outlet. Art was my way of expressing myself. And, and, And what does it all come down to? connection because we connect with the people who are showing our art to and they say I'm really feeling myself in this song because I had a hard childhood too you know but if we're going to write a song about how pretty the daisies are outside mm-hmm. it's like no one's going to fucking listen to that because it's too perfect yeah. yeah and it's like yeah and I was just thinking like I was realizing that just because of like this like these social norms like these neurotypical social norms and stuff I feel like people are usually averse to like real connection and like talking about their experiences and that that's so sad to me because it's like not only is it like I'm I when I start talking about my this stuff and starting to connect it's like it 
it comes off as off-putting to them and it's just to me it's so much more valuable than than small talk it's like no I want to talk I want to get to the meat I want to talk about my traumas I want to like connect and and it's also like they feel like they they can't talk about or they're just yeah they feel like they can't talk about their their stuff and then it's like they they just want to keep reverting to like small talk and that's one of the things that bothers me so much about small talk is like yeah it's there's no meat there's no juice to the, the I, there's no juice at all we're just like i mean it's interesting because it's like i actually have a special interest in weather so like i will talk uh-huh. about but i'll start breaking it down because i've noticed because people right. use weather as small talk and right. and they like they'll talk about it and they they expect it to be like a 30 minute brush on the or no right. a 30 second brush on the weather but I'll give them a 30 minute brush I'll I'll yeah. I'll go I'll info dump about it they're like oh it's supposed to rain today oh it's a little chilly and I'll start talking all about the weather patterns and the wind and why it's chilly and why it's raining and because this air mass is coming from here and we have the winds going to I love push. that yeah and, like well it kind of goes back to like the beginning of the conversation like the, the conversation, like, okay, well, if we're going to talk about weather, we're going to talk about weather. Yeah. It's like, it's going to have a purpose. And I think that is what it means to live with intention. It's like, if you do something, do it. Not half do it, or like, kind of do it, but do it. And I think that's how I am with, with everything. And I think it, it, it's a strength, but it's also Achilles' heel, because I think in a, in a way, if I want to start something and I know that there's a possibility that I won't finish it, well, then I won't even start, because I'm like, like, I either do it or I don't. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, that that is so important to be fully able to immerse yourself in that experience. And actually, my Airbnb host, it was so serendipitous, but she's autistic and her son is autistic so and her awesome. husband is ADHD. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and we didn't even know when I came here. Um, and she was saying how, like, she hates going to parties, because whenever she goes to parties, and she's in a conversation, the, the person will be like, okay, well, I have to go. And she'll be like, she'll get so annoyed because she won't be able to complete the conversation. Exactly. I feel that yeah. too. Like, yeah. I get into this conversation, I'm super into it. And then the person has to leave or, like, they start talking about something else. Or, like, especially if it's in a group, it's really yeah. hard. Like, that's why groups are so yeah. hard for me because it's, like, yeah. it's just too much at once. It's too many. Yeah. exactly. Com- yeah. Right, I'm the same. And I think in eating disorder treatment, like, it was all group therapy, and that was just so not helpful. And I often joke about, well, it's not a joke, like, it actually happened, but I just bring it in a really funny way, how doing group therapy, like, we would all be holding our, like, dialectical behavioral therapy books, which is, like, this thick textbook, and I'm like, why are you making, like, 16-year-old kids read this? Like, as if, as if reading textbooks written by rich white guys is going to magically make us recover from an eating disorder like the system like when you think about it like that's like what kind of billion dollar industry is this like what do we even anyways i would be like this is so pointless i knew this was bullshit so i would like hide like sudoku books in the dc and just be doing that and it was yeah i mean yeah just so silly and i think this but this is one of those things of like the, the professionals, they don't want to have to face the possibility that their methods are not, yeah. don't make any sense because to do that would be literally to sacrifice and challenge your entire sense of their identity. And we don't want our identity to be challenged. So we're going to pretend that everything is fine. And if someone challenges me, well, then we're going to say they're the problem because then at least I'm off the hook. Um, so, yeah, anyways. <laughs> No, exactly. Like I, I relate very much to what you're saying. I I have a few more. I just didn't. I wanted to do a quick check how much on how much time you have because I I still yeah. I I was like I felt so bad to say anything because I was like we were just talking about we're so in the conversation and then someone says they have to go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually do have a client call in like twenty minutes. Okay, so no if worries. we can start wrapping up, that would be fantastic. Okay. Cool. Um, my ball just fell on the floor. Oh, one second. oh god! Like, I'll 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 try to get through these um 
pretty I'm pretty, like yeah. the start of the chaos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um so my next question is uh what was it like disclosing your neurodivergence to your friends and family? Yeah, well I think it was really mixed. Um I must say that I had a really positive general experience um because I know a lot of people when they say like they're autistic, their friends and family will be like you can't be autistic, you're too social, you can be autistic, you're too smart, you're not obsessed with math and trains, blah, 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 you're not Rain Man, um, and funny thing is, I actually had not seen the movie Rain Man until everyone started talking about it, I was like, okay, well, I have to watch Rain Man now, um, but, I mean, my mom and my sisters were like, well, duh, like, that doesn't surprise us at all, um, especially, you know, when, when reading books about it and stuff, because I was like, yeah, this is just Livia, this is who you are. Um, I, I think the only person that resisted the fact that I was autistic was my dad, who's also autistic, but it's because he refuses it in himself, because and because he has this really stereotypical idea of what autistic means. I remember, because... I basically diagnosed my dad with with autism when I knew about it because I was like, oh my god, this makes so much sense. Like, this is why we're so similar in a way. Um, why he was always overstimulated by everything. Um, and yeah, just always complaining that everything was too loud and too this and too that and whatever. Um, just life was too much for him. Like, he could not handle things. And um, I remember saying like, Dad, you're totally autistic, and he was like. No, I'm too social. Like, I went to university. I, I, got, I graduated college. Like, no way I can be autistic. And I'm like, like, how are those things related? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that's the perfect illustration of the stigma. Is like, I am too, quote-unquote, high-functioning to be autistic. Um, but I'm like, well, how? Like, he was telling me also, like, I, well, I started, like, of course, challenging him and questioning him, like, okay, well, how many days do you need after you've had a social interaction? He's like, oh, yeah, like, I can't talk to people for, like, a week. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, do we need to say more? And, and and I was like, well, what about college and university? Like, how, how was that? And he was like, oh, yeah, like, it was awful because I wanted to, like, deepen myself in the subjects, but we kept moving on to more subjects. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but my, but it kind of, I think it's, he's been, he was very traumatized as a child and he's very still carrying a lot of trauma in him. He, cause he's, he's not healing that. And I think that is a conscious choice because he's afraid to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think can be really difficult when you have been happily traumatized yeah. in your youngest years. Um, and I think, you know, this saying like, I can't be autistic, like, I'm too functioning, or too this, too that, I think it's his, his way of having adapted to his circumstances to say, like, if I can say that I'm, like, a normal person that graduated college and is able to socially interact, well, then I don't have to admit that I'm different, and when we don't have to admit that we're different, well, then we're protecting ourselves from being vulnerable, because in the past, that's what saved our life if we've been traumatized. Um, So, kind of to answer your question about what was it like disclosing it, um, everyone was super receptive, and, you know, everyone who's read my book and follows my blog and reads my podcast, and um, especially, like, knowing and being and seeing the situation how it was when I was really, really sick. Like, they're all so proud of me and how I've, like, turned such a hard time into something so great. Um, but, yeah, like, literally the only person that still challenges everything I say about autism is my dad. <laughs> um, and I know he's not going to listen to this <laughs> because he's, like, the only person in my circle that is, like, very anti-learning about it because right. he's, like... We don't need to talk about this, um, but I think that just goes to show that again, it's the fear of yeah. fear of being vulnerable. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, I it's interesting you mentioned that because I also have a parent, um, my mom, that mm-hmm. I have a strong suspicion that she is autistic, and I have voices yeah. to her, and it's a similar kind of response. It's like she doesn't yeah. want to see it. Because yeah. she has a very stereotypical idea 
I mean, she was raised with a very stereotypical idea. I think not not so much anymore because of raising me, but um, I still feel like it's like she doesn't want to accept that label because of the stigma around it. But it's, and I mean, I understand that it's like, she probably doesn't see much difference or like much mm-hmm. benefit in, in getting in self-diagnosing or getting a diagnosis yeah. or whatnot like she but it's just like there's so much about her that I've always noticed like she also feels weird in social situations she also gets like sensory yeah sensitivities and aversions and it's like there's there are all these little things like she right. also I feel like I'll, probably also because of trauma and everything like I I feel like she just goes with social stuff more than yeah. I do like I yeah. feel like I'm more unmasked at this point where I'm just like no yeah. this doesn't make sense I don't want to go I'm not gonna right. go um yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more like confident in my boundaries and I think she's mm-hmm. still working on that where like she still feels compelled to do certain things yeah. um but like we've always both questioned these norms and stuff so yeah there's just all there's definitely there's definitely things that i see and that's like one of the the first things you talked about like uh of an autistic trait that doesn't get talked about a lot but i think it's it drives so many of us is like the sense of like questioning societal norms which is one of the main things i do with this podcast and Yes. Yeah. Um, so I have one. I know you have to go in like 10 minutes. So I have one final question for you. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah. I uh, feel like honestly we could talk like endlessly. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's there's so much to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, we could do, hopefully maybe we could do another episode in, in the future. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And you can definitely come on uh, my podcast awesome. too. Awesome. I'd love to. Yeah. 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 I'm taking a little break now from guests because i think i told you i'm literally moving next month and i need to find an apartment that's affordable in freaking boston out of all places um so yeah i've been very stressed about that especially because i mean housing is like a vital human need and of course the unpredictability that comes with that um but yeah once i'm settled i'm definitely um i would love to have you on awesome yeah i'd love i'd love to, to to come on and um so i'll just close it off with with this final question um what are some of the most common eating disorder struggles people reach out to you seeking help for and what are the uh and is sugar one of those and what is the most common pieces of advice you give them yeah well i'll start off with the sugar one because mm-hmm. i think it's 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 such a big one um because i feel like there are kind of two there are like three I don't want to like type people but there are like three common um angles that people come to me from and number one is you know from the restriction angle and that's like anorexia compensation like restrictive eating disorders feeling really really stuck in these patterns of basically just being afraid to live life full out um and using that eating disorder as almost a cocoon of safety of like of numbing of counting calories you know of being obsessed with exercise and obsessed with healthy eating in a way because in a way that's provides with us with constraints like if i have one option for everything if if i have all these rules around food well then i have to don't don't have to deal with that like analysis paralysis that comes with you know having choices around food and being spontaneous and being flexible around it um so i think a big question is you know like how how do I recover from the eating disorder behaviors while embracing my autism? And part of that is, you know, being able to distinguish between eating disorder behaviors and autistic traits, which is really challenging because yeah. they overlap they like do. all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really talk about, you know, that why and that intention behind the behavior because that's what it comes down to, you know. Eating disorder behaviors are always rooted in fear, you know, fear of of those consequences, fear of feeling a certain way, fear of fullness, fear of gaining weight, whatever. Whereas I think autistic traits are all about, you know, 
having that self-compassion, you know, if looking at the menu beforehand, which during my own eating disorder treatment was an eating disorder behavior, um, I still do that because it helps me, like, to know what I can expect. And if I know what I can expect, I'm going to feel calm and I'm not going to feel anxious. So same behavior could be coming from, like, a fear in, like, a neurotypical person of, like, oh, I need to know that the menu has, like, a healthy salad or something. But for an autistic person, it can be really helpful to be, like, oh, I know that these are a few options that I like. Um, doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to choose, like, the lowest calorie one. Actually, you can use it to your advantage and say, like, oh, I know they have, I don't know, a double cheeseburger. I always wanted that. I haven't eaten that in 10 years. Um, I'm going to mentally prepare that I'm going to get that at the restaurant. Yes. So in that case, again, super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the the... Second one is, you know, parents come to me who are just so confused by why is their kid not performing the normal human function of eating? (laughs) Like, they're so perplexed, um, and often their kid has gone through so much treatment and has been thrown out of the healthcare system, and these parents are at a complete loss as to, like, how can I support my kid? How can I provide them with safety and trust? Because those are such important words, um, and I think especially in the case of demand avoidance, PDA, autism, um, you know, any of those, like, family-based treatment modalities, the evidence-based thing we talked about, um, that can just have a paradoxical effect. Um, And so I kind of teach them, you know, from my own perspective of being autistic, like, well, this is probably how your kid feels. Like, what if we try this approach? Um, Really advising them on you know how to have their kid maintain that autonomy and maintain that sense of control and at the same time you know supporting them so that they feel empowered enough to challenge and move forward and become healthy um and then the sugar one um is you know a lot of autistic people who just struggle with that analysis paralysis around food preparation um and and like oh my gosh like it's so much easier to to reach for the dopamine and then to take the time to again be with yourself and and think about like what would actually nourish my body right now um and i think that word dopamine is a huge one um and stimulation is a huge one and i think that's why sugar can be a tricky one for autistic people um is that you know it's it's quick energy it's stimulating um it's in every way it's it's delicious like um, in a way, it's and it's an escape from our thoughts. Like, if I'm indulging in, like, a really delicious piece of cake, I don't have to think about the fact that I have a whole list of emails waiting mm-hmm. for me to be answered. Yeah. I'm, like, totally immersed in the enjoyment the of that cake. Yeah. Um, and I think that in and of itself can become an addiction. Mm-hmm. When you're burnt out and you're overwhelmed, it's like, the only thing I know that consistently allows me to escape is sugar, is yeah. food. Um, which, of course, is like the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to autism and eating mm-hmm. disorders. Um, and and I, I think, again, it's important to realize that eating sugar or, or using food as an escape is not an inherently bad thing. I think so much stigma about emotional eating, blah, blah, blah. But if food was not supposed to hold any emotional value, we would not have cookbooks. We would not have Thanksgiving. We would not have Christmas dinner. Like, of course, because again, food is part of why we are able to establish connection, not only with our body, but with other people. Um, it's, it's allowed to hold emotional value, but it's about is food the only thing giving you pleasure in life? well, maybe that's worth exploring. Is food the only way that you're able to find a temporary escape? Maybe that's worth exploring. I think a key takeaway from this, um, and something that I talk about with all my clients when it comes to like reframing our mindset around our food behaviors, whether it's restriction or overeating or eating sugar or whatever it is, is, you know, how can we look at the situation from a place of curiosity rather than judgment? Um, Because when we stop labeling things as good or bad, right or wrong, I should or shouldn't do this, and we say, hmm, what purpose is this serving? Do I want this to keep serving that purpose? Or do I want to explore alternative ways in which I can manage this difficulty in my life? That's when we feel empowered to actually live a life that's in alignment with our true core values. Definitely, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um... 
just like questioning like where where it's coming from um yes i yeah. think it's it's really important yeah yeah i think that's the root of everything in life is asking yourself why why do yeah. i want this what purpose is this serving yeah well i know you you have another meeting coming up soon but yes. i wanted to thank you again for coming on this was a really really great episode i'll be yeah. Um, posting the links to Livia's podcast and uh, book and cookbook. And yes. I will, I'm also really looking forward to coming on your podcast when you're, when you're more settled in, of course. Um, Definitely. <laughs> and um, yeah, this once again, this was a great episode. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me yeah. on. And um, I can't wait to listen when it's out and oh. share it with my friends and especially my mom. Awesome. <laughs> who always loves yeah. listening to my interviews. I'll let you know yeah. when it's out. I'm, I'm estimating like within a few days. It depends on like the editing and like. Yeah, sure. No yeah. rush at all. <laughs> all right. Thanks, George. Thanks. Bye. Bye.